Would you stand with me as we read from Acts 15? But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of, his, of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been making our way through the book of Acts, and a controversy has been brewing. It's been building, if you've been paying attention to some of the stories that we've been considering and what's been going on in the background, and the controversy or the tension is this, what role is the law going to play in the formation of God's covenant people? As Gentiles are beginning to believe in the good news, right, non-Jews, the question is, in order to be part of God's covenant people, do they have to become Jews? This is a question that will not only be important in the book of Acts, but as we might expect, 
will be central to the book of Galatians, which we'll start considering next week in our classes, and also in the book of Romans. And part of the important question of the law, both in its day and for us today, is the question of identity or how, how we think of ourselves as significant or important. And so a question with which we might begin is, how do you see yourself as significant or important? What establishes your identity? There are all kinds of bases for people that we might run to, right? You might think that you, well, you're very good. You embody righteousness or you're significant because you help other people or you're successful and dominate your field of expertise. Right? You could be significant because you are artsy. Right? Or because you're exceptionally knowledgeable, you're a bit of a, of a professor. Right? Or you're, you really are significant because you are the life of the party. Or that you're strong. Or that you tend to kind of level out any kind of environment and bring peace to certain situations of tension. We could go on, whatever the case may be. Right? When you're sitting around and you think, you have that little gnawing voice in the back of your mind, which I think is essentially a human characteristic, which says, why do you exist? Why are you significant? What makes you important? How are you measuring yourself this week? What is the evidence that you turn to to make the case that you are in some capacity significant or worthwhile? Now, as you consider that for yourself... You have to understand that that is part of what's going on in Acts 15 and part of the transition that occurs between the Old Testament economy under God's law and the New Testament, which is under the grace of Christ. Now, we're not saying that God has changed, uh, but the way of relating to his people has changed as a result of the cross. The law prepared Israel and prepared the world for Jesus, and Jesus comes, and now God's people live in a different relationship. It might be a little bit simplistic in some ways, but to make the point, in the Old Testament, you lived by law, and the law was quite clear. The more obedient you are, the more blessing you will receive. If you're disobedient, you will be cursed. You will, you will suffer penalties for, having, for being disobedient. But when the cross comes, right, Christ comes, we, we see God's forgiveness on display and understand that our relationship isn't so much you know, if we might describe the Old Testament like a classroom, in which you're always working for a particular grade and your performance is going to be judged and the grade corresponds to your performance. In the New Testament, it's more like a father-child relationship where, you know, you might be proud of certain achievements of your child, but you love your child. Whether they mess up in a big way or in a small way or do really well, you essentially love that child and that love isn't negotiated and that's quite different. We, wanted to just, we could approach this from a number of different angles, but one other helpful notion to keep in mind in understanding what's going on in Acts 15 is to say that in the Old Testament, obedience preceded acceptance. Right? You obeyed in order to be part of God's covenant community, but in the New Testament, we see that God has loved us to the extent that his son and the love expressed in his son precedes our faith. So acceptance comes before obedience, or obedience comes out of the acceptance that we've already received. Now, what does that have to do with Acts 15? Well, much 
in every way. Right? The question at hand in Acts 15 is what it takes to be a faithful follower of Jesus on this side of the cross. And the Jewish, some of the Jewish believers and some of the Gentile believers don't agree. They have different perspectives. Well, actually, it would be more accurate to say that some of the Jewish believers and some of the Jewish believers disagree because they're the ones who are holding the offices of power, and they have two different frameworks that they're operating. Some are going to say that to follow Jesus, a Jewish Messiah who fulfills the Jewish story, you've got to be Jewish. You've got to be circumcised, and you've got to start obeying the Mosaic law. We're not suddenly disregarding 1,500 years of history. Well, some of the other Jewish believers, by this I mean Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James, are going to say, uh, actually things have changed quite dramatically because God has done something so remarkable and unprecedented uh, and unexpected in Jesus. And this is the debate that's happening, which goes very much to what will be the identity of God's people as they move forward in faithfulness. And so we're going to work our way through some of the characters here and then ask some questions of the implications of what we see in our passage. Just so that we're clear in terms of seeing the issue in our passage, if you look at verse 1, uh, now it's a little bit confusing, and some people came out after the first service and said, there were a lot of names and places I was a bit confused, so I'm going to try to be a bit clearer this round. Our passage begins in Antioch, and in Antioch, on one side you've got Paul and Barnabas, and on the other side you've got men who were sent from Judea, right, meaning presumably Jerusalem. And what they're arguing is stated for you in verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, they're not simply talking about circumcision, but circumcision represents all of the law. And they're saying, we're delighted the Gentiles are becoming believers. Well, if they want to be part of Yahweh's people, they have to be law followers. They have to start heeding the Mosaic law. Well... This isn't agreed upon. And by verse 2, uh, we see that Paul and Barnabas taking the other side, a fight breaks out. The language is actually pretty strong when it says no small dissent occurred between the two parties. They are fighting, they're arguing, and it's at an impasse. They can't resolve the difference. One part of the church thinks they're right, and the other part of the church thinks that they're right. Really, in some ways, I think it's encouraging, A, to see that it doesn't take very long to the church to be near a split, right? This is just part of figuring out God's will in a, in, in a world in which it's not completely revealed to us. But B, too, you know, God doesn't hand the answer down. He makes everybody wrestle. And at the end of the day, believing that they're led by the Holy Spirit, they said, this is what seems best to us. And I think it's a, a bit of an encouragement in terms of our wrestling and our pursuit of unity in the midst of sometimes disagreeing with one another. Well, being at an impasse, what do they decide to do? They say, well, we're going, to, uh, we're going to level this up a notch and appeal to the higher authorities. And so we need to send people from Antioch now to Jerusalem. And of course, in Jerusalem, you've got some of the apostles hanging out. Peter's going to show up, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, is leading the church in Jerusalem at this point. And so they arrive at Jerusalem, but we see that the issue becomes even uh, more involved. Not only do we have the men from Judea who showed up in Antioch, now in Jerusalem in verse 5, who do we have? The party of the Pharisees, which is kind of cool. 
because apparently a number of Pharisees have converted to believe in Jesus and are following him. But what they're also advocating, as you might expect of a Pharisee, is that to follow Jesus, you have to obey the law. And so they're continuing to make uh, that argument. Uh, in verse 5, it says it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep them uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so you've got this question. With Hopefully we're all on the same page at this point. right? What is the question? The men from Judea and the party of the Pharisees arguing now in Jerusalem want Gentile believers to have to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. This is what it means to be a faithful follower of God. Well, Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James are going to start to ask hard questions. Right? One of the questions that lies behind this, and you get more clearly in Galatians, is uh, if Jesus died simply to enable Gentile believers to keep the law, what was the point of Jesus' death? Like, couldn't they just start obeying the Mosaic law without the Son of God dying on a cross? Right? That's a pretty good question. These are some of the questions that are, are, are lying behind and around the debate as it's occurring before us in Acts uh, uh, chapter 15. And yet, I think we need, to, uh, we need to be sympathetic. We have a real tendency to be judgmental. And we say, well, those legalizing Pharisees, let's remember a couple things. Number one, the Pharisees and the men from Judea stand on both Scripture and tradition. The Scripture is very clear, the Old Testament Scripture, that if you want to be part of the people of God, you have to be circumcised. There's not a plan B, there's not a caveat, there's not an exception. And it is the tradition that everyone has stood upon. Paul and Barnabas and James and Peter are arguing kind of a minority position, which is going to become the majority position, but this position that, no, you don't realize what God has done in Christ. You are grossly underestimating what has been done in Jesus if you think that the whole point of Jesus is just that the whole world is going to live under the Mosaic Law. That wasn't the point at all. And yet, and as we think about this propensity to law, and we think about the party of the Pharisees and the men from Judea, I think we also need to reflect upon our own propensity to law. There's part of our hearts that we love to run to law to establish our own identity, our own righteousness, our own achievement, to say, you must accept me, God must accept me, you must give me what I want because I have obeyed. Now, if you, if you look closely, you can see this play out all the time around you. You see it play out in, in relationships between husbands and wives and in family dynamics and certainly between parents and kids. This, just completely hypothetically speaking, this might happen in my household occasionally in which I ask my children to do something. You know, maybe, imagine we just get up on a Saturday and I say something like, you know, I'd like you to help around the house and the yard today. Well, you can, you can feel the tension rise in the room. That is not what they envisioned for their Saturday. And they are not happy to be interrupted. And so they say, well, well what do you mean? I said, well, I didn't think I was that unclear. I'd like you to help out around the house and the yard today. Well, let's get a few things done. And he goes, no, I, w- exactly. What do you mean? And what they're asking is essentially, I would like a law, right? I would like to know exactly what you expect of me 
so that I will know exactly when I have achieved what you expect so that I can check that box and as soon as I'm done, I can disappear and get on with what I want to do with the rest of the day. And is that not an analogy for our relationship with God? That I prefer a law. Just give me a rule. And once I know that I've observed that rule on any given day or any given week, I can move on and be busy with what I want to be busy about. It's it's more manageable. And I can think that really I've achieved something. I'm significant because I've accomplished the rule. It's done. It's put away. And now I deserve, I'm entitled to engage what I want to engage. And in that way, there's a great, there's a very, um, there's an amazing attractiveness to law. Right? In fact, I would say that most of Christianity, certainly in the Bible Belt over the last 50 years, has been characterized by kind of a pseudo-law-keeping fundamentalism. Where I understand my righteousness and my gospel adherence by basically not being really grossly bad. Right, I don't, I don't think, you know, and we've got little phrases, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, things of that nature, but they're just rules. And those may not be your rules, but we have rules that we check off and we think, oh, I'm not bad, I'm, I'm being a pretty good covenant member, and now I can, I can move on. And you have to believe that this is going on at some level for the Pharisees, for everything that we know about them, that they can say two things. One, I've done what I'm supposed to do, so I... I've achieved my identity before God. And two, I can also consider myself uh, to have power because I know that I am on the inside circle of those who have been obedient, and I know the rubric by which I can judge other people, which makes me feel better, makes me feel powerful over others, and I like that position. And so I cling to that power. This is all the attractiveness of law that we would be drawn into, which makes... What Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James are arguing for, so profoundly radical. Consider uh, what Peter gets up and says, and then afterwards we'll consider what James says. Peter says in verse 7, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What is Peter talking about? He's probably talking about Cornelius, uh, the conversion of Cornelius. Right? The first Gentile convert when God provides visions both to Peter and to Cornelius, and he's brought into the kingdom. But Peter goes on from that and says, uh, to unpack what has occurred with the Gentiles. In verse 8, he says, God gave the Holy Spirit to them. Therefore, in verse 9, there's no distinction between us and them. God's given us the same spirit. Also in verse 9, he says that their hearts are cleansed by faith. And then in verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Pretty astounding argument, right? First of all, he says, if you want, after having seen the spirit uh, uh, dispensed to the Gentile people and you recognize that their hearts have been cleansed by faith, what more evidence do you need that God is for them and has invited them into his people? If you want to throw the Mosaic law on top of that, you're putting God to the test. God's already demonstrated that these are included in his covenant people. And he goes on from there. and say, by the way, <laughs> you really, this is amazing, by the way. By the way, the law never worked for us. It was a yoke that our fathers couldn't bear. We haven't borne it. 
why would you throw it on them? It's never actually functioned, right, except to prepare us for this display of God's grace, which is what we desperately need. We don't need the Mosaic law in the fashion that it was given. It was given for a season to prepare, not for a season of permanence. And I'm talking about the Mosaic law whole, not simply uh, the moral part of the Mosaic law. And so in verse 11, Peter will summarize, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter speaks of this amazing, there's the, the, the playing field has been leveled. All of God's people get the spirit. Everyone's heart is cleansed by faith. Everyone's the same, saved the same way, which is by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Which to anticipate where we're going, right? To be saved by grace in Christ is two things. One, it frees you from having to live by achievement, right? And it frees you from feeling the need to exert power, right? Because both are accomplished for you and given to you in Christ. Well, Peter is not the only one. Peter kind of, you get the impression that everybody's arguing, the debate is raging on, and Peter gets up and speaks, and it's a little bit quiet after Peter has spoken. Pretty hard lines to argue with. And so James, who is leading the church, uh, gets up afterwards and, has, uh, and is going to mention, kind of bring things to a close and give some advice to the churches. The first thing he does is to say, you know, the prophets actually agree. They've always looked forward to a day when God is going to do something that is bigger than Israel, that will have an impact on the Gentiles. Sometimes you get language in the Old Testament prophets of God is so great and his name so renowned that simply the worship of one country, one nation, would never be adequate to bring him the glory that he deserves. That they're in the, if you look from the perspective of the prophets in the Old Testament, there's a day coming, which isn't very well defined, but there's a day coming when there will be a particular salvation that has universal implications. A particular salvation which ultimately comes in Christ and universal implications, which means all tribes and nations will be included. And this is why he quotes, he mashes together a passage from Amos and a passage from Isaiah. And he says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This ancient prophecy that there's a day coming when God will restore the tent of David, Jesus, and as a result, the Gentiles will be called by his name, which is playing out right before us in the book of Acts. And from there he says, so I've got some advice for you, for the churches. Now, this is a puzzling passage, at least it puzzled the church for quite a while until a few very bright people kind of figured out what was going on. But the question that you might be asking at this point, okay, if, if Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James are saying the Mosaic law doesn't function in the same way, we're all saved and made righteous in Jesus, then is the proper response, yes, woohoo, I can go do whatever I want to do. It's done, right? I said at the beginning, you've been accepted and your obedience comes out of acceptance, but if I've been accepted, do I need to worry about obedience? Yes, much in every way. And I want you to see here that what James is suggesting is not only radically different, but in many ways more significant, more demanding, more taxing 
than is simply the Mosaic law, but it also brings more life. If you look at verse 20, James will make four suggestions, four recommendations to the churches. To abstain from things polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, to abstain from what has been strangled, and to abstain from blood, which means to abstain from food that still has the blood in it, right? According to Jewish law, you only ate meat that has been drained, right? Cut at the neck and uh, the blood drains out, and then you can cook the meat. But if you strangle an animal, the blood's still in it, gets cooked, that's not kosher. You can't eat that. So people puzzled for some time over what is James talking about? Why pick these four random aspects of law? What, what is the point? This started with a discussion about circumcision and the Mosaic law, and we end up with four pretty myopic pieces of advice for the churches as they're seeking to follow after Jesus. So people started to chew on this, and eventually uh, a few bright people said, you know, we might ask, where do we, what holds these four elements in common? Or where do we find these four elements playing any role together? And finally, like, oh, somebody turned the light bulb on. The place that you find all these four things happening is in the pagan temple. Right? It's in the pagan temple that you would have access to eat food polluted by idols. That in most pagan temples of the ancient Greco world, right, immorality of the kind that is described was a big part of worship. And your food, the meat that's being sacrificed, would often be strangled and wouldn't be slaughtered in the appropriate way. Which means that this is not so much a statement about uh, Israel, or the New Testament people of God's relationship to the law. What James is saying is what's most important for the new church is to begin to pull out a participation in the pagan temples of the ancient world. Which is a very big request. Right? Lest you underestimate what James is suggesting to the churches, everything that was of significance or fun essentially happened in the pagan temple. Right? Your, your weddings, your parties, your business transactions, um, you know, if you, your entertainment. Um, if you took you know, the, the cinema of today, if you took the sports and tailgating, if you took... Uh, big parties, and if you took every social event in your family, you know, weddings and reunions and things of this nature, all of that happened in the temple. So, uh, in a very profound way, to say, for James to suggest to the churches, Gentile believers, if you're going to follow Jesus, it means that you begin not to achieve through the Mosaic law, but it means that you begin to withdraw from the narrative around you, right, that grants significance and meaning and social identity. So, to think about that in light of our condition is to think about where do we participate in narratives to establish our social identity, to establish our significance, other than the story of Jesus. What does it look like to, are there places where we have believed too deeply in, say, an American story rather than the story of Christ and so have given into achievement? You know, the kinds of things I'm talking about, it's an American story that you should, you should climb the ladder to the very top point that you can make. Succeed and succeed and uh, higher and higher, make more and more money. This is significance. This is identity. 
But it might be a story of following Jesus where you say, I don't buy into that story. I don't buy into that narrative, which is a narrative that has its grandfather narrative as the pagan temple. And instead, I might take a lesser paying job or a job of lesser significance so that I have more time to invest in the kingdom in some capacity or I'm going to make sure that I'm home and, or I'm going to make sure that I lead my kids in serving the poor. Those are Jesus stories, right? not American stories. It's an American story that we would, we would engage in an artificial goodness that doesn't really demand anything. Right? The American version of goodness is, well, you don't hurt anybody, but you spend 98% of what you make on your wants and desires. Well, maybe to, to separate from that narrative of a pagan temple and to follow Jesus is to say, you know, maybe I'm called to be radically generous and sacrificial with what I have. And I'm pulling out of that American story and engaging a story of Jesus instead. It could be any kind of, you know, it's an American story that we would, well, it's becoming less and less of an American story, but it certainly was an American story that you would marry a beautiful person and have beautiful children and your family would be beautiful and lovely. And perhaps it's a Jesus story, like the story of, of Jesus and Paul himself, to be called to singleness and to not have that American story of the beautiful family. The basic question is, to what degree are we buying into those stories, those narratives that have very little to do with the gospel? Right? And to what degree are we really willing to say, call me where you will, I'm, if, I, if I look at the early church and understand that James says, I'm pulling you out of the basic, most fundamental aspect of your society in order to follow Jesus faithfully, then you can be pretty safe assured that following Jesus today is, means that you're going to be pulled out of some of the basic storylines and fabrics of our society. To expect otherwise, I think, would be a bit silly. I was encouraged... Uh, lately and just kind of chuckled at the perspective of age and how even in the secular realm, the wor a world that does, has no reference to God, comes to some of the same conclusions. And I've enjoyed following uh, two people in their twilight as they reflect back on their careers. And what, one is David Letterman and the other is Bill Gates. And David Letterman, who has retired and grown a uh, beard, down to here and has a young child as an old man and seems to be really enjoying retirement, has given a number of very fascinating interviews. And that one of the aspects I find fascinating is that when he looks back to the 80s and 90s, he describes how his entire life revolved around the ratings between him and Leno. If he beat Leno, it was a good week or a good day. If he lost to Leno, it was a bad week. And that week would then be spent working obscene hours to make sure that they had more viewers the next time over Leno. And it, it, I don't know if you remember, but it got kind of nasty at various times where there was a lot of tension and animosity between the staffs and the, uh, the leads of the two programs. So you fast forward to David Letterman now. Right? And he says essentially, he says, you know, looking back on the 80s and 90s and even into the, uh, the early aughts, he says, I have no idea why that was important to me. Right? What, a, what a remarkable, he basically committed his life to having the most highly rated talk show on late night. And now in his older age, as he looks back on his life, 
He says things like, what a complete waste. What was I thinking? I lived in this matrix of achievement, and all I could do was establish my identity by beating this man, uh, Jay Leno. I said, for what? What did it earn me? What did it grant me? And then Bill Gates, who very similarly, in his later years, looks back a little bit different way. This is how consumed he was to achieve. He wanted to build the greatest coding business in America. And again, worked obscene, insane hours uh, to be this person and to build this business. But what he, what he actually comments on as he looks back is he will say, I, um, and he's known, he was known for this back in the day in the 80s and 90s. And uh, he says, I treated people so poorly. So if you weren't performing and, uh, at the absolute best and you weren't impressing me, I, just, I didn't treat you as a human being. He says, I wish I had to go back and do over again. He says, I don't know why I was so consumed with that achievement. Treating people like that didn't gain me anything. Two guys, no reference to God in their lives, who look back on their life and say, you know, I lived a life of achievement. I lived a life that, that basically believed I would not be accepted until I achieved something. And that achievement defined my entire life. And now in their twilight years, they, they look back and say, what a waste. And how many of us, as you know, if we, if we allow ourselves to go down that road, we'll say, even within Christendom, we lived such a life of achievement. Right? I had to do all of these things, and I didn't believe that I was accepted by God or accepted by others unless I performed, unless I achieved. And as a result, right, you don't understand what Peter and James are talking about. That the achievement has been turned up on its head because Jesus has done all the achieving that is necessary. And now, as a result, right, you don't have to obey to be accepted. You are accepted, and out of that flows a free obedience. Right? And I told you a little bit ago that in that obedience is freedom. Now, it's difficult, right? If we talk about seriously pulling out of the pagan temples of our day, that means that we're going to have loss. It's going to feel like loss because we're going to be separating ourselves from things that people love around us and that we're prone to love. But in that, remember two things. When you pull out of the stories of the pagan temples right, and you bend the knee to Jesus, right, you're freed from achievement right, because you look at Jesus and you say, I can't add anything to that. But you're also freed from the need for power and the need to exert that power in others because you Bend the knee to the one who gave up all of his power. He laid it down and took the form of a bondservant out of love for you that you might be redeemed. And then why would you go forth from that and exercise power so that you can remind yourself how more important and significant you are than others? The more you look at Jesus, the less you're able to do that. And in those two basic understandings of the gospel, right, there is complete freedom. Right? The pagan temple, the story of the pagan temple will never... It may grant a lot of fun in the moment or what feels like fun, but it will never grant life. Right? There's only one Savior who cleanses our, our hearts by grace, and that's Christ. Let's turn to him. Jesus, we praise you, Lord and Savior, because you have cleansed our hearts uh, by your grace that we might receive it through faith. And we thank you that no longer do we have to make sure that we have... Um, 
crossed every T and dotted every I in order to be received and accepted and loved by you, but you have shown your love for us in the cross. And now you call us to be yours. So would you help us to follow you with faithfulness? Help us to be bold to recognize the stories of the pagan temples that we are so tempted to live in. And would you help us to separate from them and to increasingly become yours and for our stories to increasingly tell your story. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen. Those who are helping to serve the Lord's Supper this morning may come forward. If you uh, are visiting with us, you are welcome at this table. Uh, The Bible lays down a few expectations of someone who would receive the Lord's Supper. That is someone who professes faith in Christ, who has been baptized into his body, and uh, participates in the family of God. And if that is true of you, you're welcome at this table. You don't have to be a member of Rockwell Presbyterian Church. If, however, you don't believe in Jesus, or if you're wrestling with sin because you really recognize that you love that sin more than you love Jesus at this moment, then we would encourage you not to participate this morning, and that is because Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11 that to eat and drink of this table in an unworthy fashion is to eat and drink judgment unto oneself. And so we wouldn't desire that for you. Instead, pray. Do business with God. The table will be waiting uh, for you when you have taken care of that issue. For those of you who come forward this morning, who come broken knowing that the brokenness of Christ makes you whole, let's uh, prepare our hearts together. The Lord be with you and also also with you. you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them them up to the Lord. Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It It is is right right to give our our thanks thanks and praise. First Corinthians, Paul tells us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he should come again. Let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we desperately need you. Would you please meet us at this table? Would you please offer us yourself that we might be nourished on you? And encouraged in our faith, go forth from here as those who follow you faithfully out of the pagan temple and into the road that you would call us. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.